So I want to look with you in the next 20 minutes or so at the Mental Capacity Act and 16 and 17 year olds. It's not an entirely straightforward area and the law continues to evolve. So this is a, the position as it stands in January 2021. It also doesn't constitute legal advice as opposed to trying to think things through at a matter of principle. So I'm going to share some slides and off we go. So, as I say, health warning, it's accurate as of January 2021. The law, surprisingly perhaps, continues to evolve in this area. It not really having been the subject of huge amounts of considerations for many of the years since the Mental Capacity Act came in in 2007, there's now an awful lot of focus on it in particular in the medical treatment context, but we're also then starting to think about it in the context of liberty protection safeguards coming into force in 2022. So the starting point is that the Mental Capacity Act applies to 16 to 17 year olds in exactly the same way as it does to adults, except there are a few things which you can't do if you're 16 or 17, simply because you are not yet an adult. So you can't make an advanced decision for a fused treatment, but you could make an advanced statement. In other words, saying, this is what I'd like, what I wouldn't like. And if you didn't have capacity at the point when the decision then needed to be taken as to what was in your best interests, people should pay attention to it in relation to a statement made by a young person with capacity in the same way that they would as with an adult with capacity. 16 or 17 year old can't grant a power of attorney or indeed be an attorney. And they can't make a statutory uh, uh, and the court of protection can't make a statutory will on behalf of a 16 or 17 year old. So there's some things which 16 and 17 year olds simply can't do or can't be done in relation to a 16 and 17 year old simply because of their age. And that's not entirely surprising because other types of legislation also differentiates between people aged 16 and 17 and those over 18. So, for instance, marriage, voting, things like that. So what test do we apply when someone turns 16 to think about their decision-making ability? For some time, actually, this has been uh, in some doubt. There's been some doubt as to what exactly the test which is to be applied. Very recently, uh, in January 2021, Sir James Mumby, in a case called NHS Trust and X, said, at least in the context of medical treatment, once you reach the age of 16, the issue of so-called Gillick competence, the test of Gillick competence falls away. The child is assumed to have legal capacity to give consent to medical or surgical or dental treatment, unless the child is shown to lack mental capacity as defined in sections one and three of the Mental Capacity Act. So in other words, post 16, what we're thinking about in relation to decision-making ability in relation to medical treatment is does this person have capacity to make this decision? Of course, there's a presumption of capacity, but if you look at the capacity fundamentals, uh, Shadonar, you'll see the circumstances under which that presumption might be displaced, that there's reason to consider the person might not be able to make the decision. It's also the case that the test to consider, can this young person, can this 16 or 17 year old consent to confinement, that almost definitely is the MCA as well. That's what the Supreme Court seemed to consider in the Reed D case. There might be other zones and Sir James Mumby in the X case suggested as a matter of generality, the question of is somebody un uh, under the age of 18 Gillick competent? There might be other areas where this idea of Gillick competence, which is not about mental capacity, it's, it's the developmental trajectory of children. 
and simply their maturity. It's not about having an impairment or a lack of impairment. It's a very different concept to mental capacity. That might still apply in other contexts, but at least in a medical treatment context, this X case, very helpfully, at least in my view, really makes it clear that we're only thinking about mental capacity post-16. And D, as I say, that's also going to be the case for thinking about deprivation of liberty, which is going to be relevant when we come to think of the liberty protection safeguards and the concept of deprivation of liberty a bit more in a minute. So the Mental Capacity Act and the Mental Health Act Code of Practice as they stand have talked about the idea of somebody who's 16 or 17 who's unable to make a decision, but not because they've got something wrong with their mind or brain. The decision is simply overwhelming. It's outside the scope of what they've previously had to do before. I think it's important to say that although this was identified in guidance, it's never been identified in any case. And at least in relation to medical treatment, in light of that X case I talked about in a minute ago, it's quite difficult to see how this category now exists, because as James Mumby says, post 16, there's a presumption of legal capacity to give consent to treatment. And then uh, unless the person doesn't have capacity applying the mental capacity yet. And also just in relation to that X case, I think it's important to note that Sir James wasn't particularly attracted by the idea that there's a difference between consent to treatment and refusal of treatment. That's not how the Court of Protection thinks about things in relation to those over 18. He seemed to suggest that that's exactly the same approach you apply in relation to 16 and 17 years, uh, 17 year olds as well. Of course, if somebody looks like they want to refuse treatment and there's a consideration of whether or not they've got capacity to refuse, one of the relevant pieces of information is going to be the consequences of refusal. So that's where one might start filtering in. Can this 16, 17 year old actually understand the consequences of refusal? And if they can't, bearing in mind the support principle in the Mental Capacity Act, does that in fact show they've got something wrong with their mind or brain? So here's a bit of a pop quiz for you. If you've got a 16 or 17 year old and you've, they're unable to consent to the relevant act to make the decision, and there's a person with true parental responsibility, do you can seek consent from that person or do you follow the best interest decision-making process under the Mental Capacity Act? Does it make a difference? Well, this is one of the areas where the law is going to, I think, still continue to evolve, because at least as it stands, it's clear that you could go down either route. It's legally slightly curious in a way. You can either proceed on the basis that the young person doesn't have capacity to consent, and then it's treated exactly as if they're an adult. Think about their best interests, consulting, of course, the relevant people, including the parent or somebody close to them interested in their welfare, but not actually seeking consent from the parents. That's the Mental Capacity Act structure. Alternatively, relying on common law, getting consent from the person with parental responsibility, means that there's then actually oddly no need to be thinking about the child's best interest applying the Mental Capacity Act. Of course, one of the things you'd be asking was whether the parent was thinking of the best interests of their child. And actually, it does make a difference in reality, potentially, if, especially if there's a disagreement. I talk about this more in a discussion paper, which I'll link to from the, uh, the, web, uh, the, the web version of this talk. Um, and it does actually make something of a difference if there's a disagreement. Although it's parallel, my suggestion is always necessary to think through, well, what route am I using and why am I using this route? 
And it does seem to me that the Mental Capacity Act has got something important about it because it's got a much more structured way for thinking about the best interests of the child. The Children Act 1989 talks about the welfare of the child as the paramount consideration, but it doesn't really flesh out how one thinks about the best interests of the child. Mental Capacity Act's got a very clear structure. So if you can use the MCA, which you definitely can in this context, my suggestion is you should use it. But you are allowed to use common law and think about consent from a person with parental responsibility if it's an area where they're allowed to consent. But be clear as to why you're doing it. There are, though, some important limits to what a person with parental responsibility could consent to. Bree D, the Supreme Court told us in 2019, no one can ever consent on behalf of a 16 or 17 year old to confinement. The test for confinement being the acid test. Lack of freedom to leave and continue supervision and control. If the 16 or 17 year old is confined, they can't consent. No one can consent on their behalf. And if that confinement's imputable to the state, the state knows or ought to know, there needs to be, at the moment, 2021, there'd have to be an application to court unless this fell within the scope of a secure accommodation order under the Children Act or an application under the Mental Health Act for admission under the Mental Health Act. Otherwise, it's an application to court. In due course, liberty protection safeguards will apply to 16 plus where they lack capacity applying the Mental Capacity Act test to provide an administrative structure to ensure their proper checks and balances there. So what about treatment? So there's a, quite a bit of text there, but just think this through. What about the limits of parental responsibility in relation to treatment? So in principle, you don't even need to think about trying to get consent from somebody else if the 16 or 17 year old has capacity and is consenting. So surgical, medical or dental treatment, that's Section 8 Family Law Reform Act, their consent is valid, legally valid, and stands as consent, meaning you don't need to, again, get someone else to say yes on their behalf. The Mental Health Act says that they can consent to admission as an informal patient if they've got capacity to do so, don't need to get consent from anyone else. There's a live issue at the moment about what the position is where a 16 or 17 year old wants to consent with capacity to experimental treatment. This is the Bell case about the prescription of puberty blockers. In that case, the court said, we really think this is so experimental that even though this young person's got capacity, people should go to court, the clinicians go to court to check whether it's appropriate. That case is under appeal at the moment. And one of the things the court didn't talk about here is whether or not the parent could seek to, as it were, give an additional consent. It rather, the, the approach of the divisional court rather suggests that the, the parental consent actually doesn't alleviate, wouldn't alleviate their concern. You will need to see what the Court of Appeal says in due course about this. A parent, so looking to the next bullet point, a parent couldn't override the refusal of a 16 or 17 year old to go into hospital as an informal patient if they've got capacity to make that decision is saying no. They also couldn't consent to their admission if their admission is going to amount to confinement. And as a rule of thumb, it is very unlikely that somebody who is going to be, who has impaired decision-making capacity and is admitted to a mental health hospital, it's extremely like, unlikely they're gonna be anything other than confined. 
We've just seen a parent can't consent to confinement. So it's overwhelmingly likely in that circumstance that there would need to be an admission under the Mental Health Act or possibly a court order if for whatever reason the admission wasn't using the Mental Health Act wasn't felt to be appropriate. Look at the next bullet point, a parent, it's always been said, or it has been said, that a parent could consent so as to override the refusal of a capacitor 16 or 17 year old to consent to medical treatment. It has been said in pre-Human Rights Act case law, but not actually determining a case. It was an observation of comment. Nobody has ever thought that that is actually something which is a good idea. Lady Hale and Reed D described that as a controversial idea. A very, the always, the very strong suggestion in all guidance is always, it's extremely dodgy to use a legal term to rely on a parental override for a 16, 17 year old but they've got capacity to make the decision and are saying no. The court can definitely still override that refusal. That's what Sir James Mumby upheld or confirmed was still the case in the X case we looked at a minute ago. He very expressly didn't say what the position would be if the parents ought to agree. He was looking at the position where the case is before the court. It's possible that that case will go to, on appeal to the Court of Appeal. You might have to revisit that position, but that is definitely the position at the moment. The court can override a 16 or 17 year old's refusal, even if they've got capacity. And that's one of the real true areas of difference between the 16, 17 year olds and those over 18. If you're over 18 and you say no, and you've got capacity to make the decision and you don't fall within the scope of the mental health, that no one can override. Under 18, the court could override. That's one of the reasons I think why was undoubtedly one of the reasons why the Law Commission suggested all those years ago and the Mental Capacity Act makes clear that you can't, for instance, make an advanced decision to refuse treatment under, under, as an under 18 because the court can override. In the interest of making sure, really, that under 18s reach the age of majority, that's really the kind of underlying policy idea. What about the situation where a 16 or 17 year old is really strongly objecting, but it's clear that they don't have capacity to make the decision? That's that last bullet point. My very strong suggestion, please go to court in that situation in exactly the same way that you would be thinking about going to court in relation to an adult lacking capacity, because there's a very clear issue about whether or not that treatment is in that person's best interests. I'm relying on parental uh, agreement in that point uh, at that situation again seems to me deeply challenging especially if the child is close to 18. So a bit of a whistle-stop tour which court family court for children act matters high court family division inherent jurisdiction that's where the medical treatment cases get thought about that's where deprivation liberty is thought about that's that re a to f case and there's real judicial edginess about the use of inherent jurisdiction in circumstances. What really should be happening is an application for a secure accommodation order under the Section 25 of the Children Act, but there isn't the secure accommodation available. The Supreme Court's considering that in an appeal from the decision of Reed T in the Court of Appeal at, in January 2021, when I'm recording this. Again, you'll need to keep an eye out for what the Supreme Court says. You could also go to the Court of Protection for 16 and 17 year old. They could consider their welfare. They could consider their medical treatment. They could consider whether to authorise deprivation liberty. 
the cop doll 11, that bottom bullet point, that's the procedure for applying for what's sometimes called a community doll, a court authorised deprivation of liberty. Which court? I've just given you a block of text there, which is making a long point taken from quite an old case, B versus RM. Simply which court is better, High Court or Family Court on the one hand or Court of Protection. It's what court is best able to safeguard the welfare of the child. And in any situation where the situation is likely to be ongoing, post 18, obviously much more sensible to start, as it were, getting them before the Court of Protection rather than having the case start in the High Court of High Court Family Division or the Family Court and then have to transfer across. So, as I say, this has a whistle, been a whistle-stop tour of quite a complicated area. It's also January 2021, and I've mentioned at least three cases, well, one of which where we're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide, re-T, one of them where permission's been granted to appeal, that's the Bell case, and one where it's quite possible that permission will be sought, that's the X case. So I will please keep an eye out for this, and when we've got more clarity, I will try and I will do another shed and art updating people. In the meantime, here are the usual resources and the easiest way to keep yourself abreast of things is to sign up to our mental capacity law report at the top bullet point and also follow me at, at capacity law and you'll get updates from me. I can't give you advice on the facts of any individual legal case, but hopefully this has helped you at least walk you through some of the key issues and look out for some of the key things to think about. Thanks so much.